Well, it's good to be able to greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus this morning. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. This will be Acts chapter 6, and in a moment we'll begin reading in verse 8. This is where we left off uh, last week, even though many of us have not been together for a few weeks. Glad to see each one of you. Uh, whether you're here or whether you're at home. Uh, But our portion for today, and if you may be visiting with us, we're glad you're here. We're always glad to have guests. We teach through books of the Bible, a passage at a time. So it's been several weeks since we started this series on the book of Acts. We find ourselves in chapter 6, verse 8, and we'll read through verse 10, and then we'll pray together. Verse 8 reads, And Stephen, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came to him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses has delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is God's Word, and let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for another opportunity, a space in time where we can sit with our Bibles open and ask for you to unfold for us its contents. Lord, would you help us understand what we've just read to bring to our memory the, the things that we've studied in weeks past. To put before our eyes the, the, the rolling narrative, even visually, so we can see what's taking place. But Lord, before we leave this place, would you show us what it means to us? And what we're supposed to do as a result. We thank you for each other. We thank you for the, the ability to be in, in the room together, those of us that are here. Lord, we thank you again, as always, for the, the means to meet with others where they are. But Lord, I ask that you would give us a, a special blessing of your encouragement, particularly for those who've, who found themselves in, a, in the place of loss. Lord, may the songs that we sang today, some that were planned for three weeks ago, be just what we needed to hear. Lord, put us where you need us in order to receive from you not only what we need, but enough to give away to others that are in need as well. So, Lord, bless this time in your word, time together, and time to praise you in the name of the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I thought I'd start with the question. I don't know how many we've got in the room. There's usually a few, but... How many of you are the type that would skip ahead 
to the end of a book to find out how it ends. Before you actually get there, having done the work uh, to hear the, the, the piece of literature out, I, I must confess I've done that more than once, but I'm kind of one of those people that it would bother me more to say that I didn't finish all the way. Uh, I have many books that probably will never be finished and I'll never know the end just because I'd rather read the whole thing than skip to the end. I think, though, uh, these days there's probably more, I don't know, Americans that watch films or shows more so than reading full books. So I thought... You know, rather than to comment on whether or not I think that's a good thing or a bad thing, time will tell. But have you noticed how some of these television shows sometimes begin with the end? The first few sequences that you see actually have to do with the conclusion of the story. But they're put there to make sure that you don't flip the channel to the next thing or at least bring you in on what's happening such that through the, the body of the whole film... You're asking yourselves, how did what I saw come to pass? Usually the movie is to, to explain what you saw at the beginning. I thought it might be helpful, knowing that many of you have already read the book of Acts. We're not cheating by reading the end of Stephen's story by doing so. But in order to paint a picture in our head of where we're going over the next three weeks, it'll take us three weeks to get through the end of chapter 6 we just read, big portion of chapter 7 which is his defense in court and then Stephen's end at the end of chapter 7 here's what it says if you want to look at verse 54 in Acts chapter 7 this is how the story concludes before we go to the next person's story which will include Philip and then later um, you know you've got Cornelius Paul's going to be introduced but verse 54, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's what we're working toward. This man Stephen's end. This is the story of Stephen. And at this point now you know he's the church's first martyr. For those unfamiliar with that word, it, it basically means that this man will die for his, his faith. His, his ideas, what he believes. And what led up to this, well you have to come back next week or go home and read the difference between the end of chapter 6 and verse 54 in chapter 7. It's a long discussion. In fact, it's one of the longest, or is the longest, if you want to call it a sermon, uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, what led up to it? It's detailed. And we know of the conflict between the world and God's Son. We know that is 
the Easter story. But when you get into the book of Acts, you find out that the conflict quickly picks up where it left off, not with the Son of God, but with the church of the Son of God. And Stephen is its first martyr. So what do we know about this guy, Stephen? Well, we were introduced to him last week. If you were to back up uh, in chapter 6, we started out with now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Big problem. Could derail the whole thing. And then later we see, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, verse 5, and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then there's six other guys, including Philip. And each of them had Greek names. That was last week's portion. But we've already been introduced. One of the seven chosen to oversee the distribution regarding the needy widows. And we learn next week that he didn't have to give up his preaching skills or job in order to serve as what many would think to be the beginning of the Bible's office of deacon. They were each chosen from among the people. We learned that last week. They each had a good reputation. They each were full of the Holy Spirit. They each were full of wisdom. But when you get to verse 8, if you're kind of looking at it, maybe it's all on the same page. Uh, At the end, there's a summary in verse 7. The Word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. End of paragraph, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power. So out of the seven, and the issue of taking care of the widows, that's left in history. Subject changes, and Stephen is singled out for the next... uh, paragraph in 6 and all through chapter 7 before we get to chapter 8. So what we've got to do is ask ourselves why would Luke spend this significant amount of time comparatively on this story, this man. We know nothing of the, of the others except for Philip. We'll read about him later too. But when we see an, an, an emphasis, a significance of time and words, well, then we lean in and we pay attention better. So here's what we'll use to organize what we've got here, verses 18 through through 15. And uh, this could serve as your outline if you so choose. And then toward the end, we'll we'll try to see what this means to us. But let's first figure out what this meant uh, to its first audience, Luke, what it meant to Stephen. So here's, here's what we'll do. We'll look first at Stephen's character. We got a little bit of that earlier. Luke is going to expound on that, verse 8. After we look at his character, we're going to look at his courage. And it will really take next week for that to come into full focus as we see what this man endures, what he's willing to do knowing the outcome. And then the third for today is verse 15, which is a description of his countenance, his face that it shone like the face of an angel. Try to figure out what that means. All of those start with the letter C, character, courage, and countenance. Although I don't think you used that word last week. And then we'll look at what this means. But look at verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. 
So when we left him last week, he was uh, busy in service. Now it looks like he's got quite the profile. Luke had already introduced him as full of the Spirit and wisdom. Now add grace and power. That has to do with his character. Now what he had done, as far as things that, that he was doing, well, that's wonders and signs. But think about all that put together. If you add, you know, full of the Spirit, wisdom, and then add to that grace and power, that's, that's quite a description, but it's an interesting combination, I would think. If you really were to, if you were forced to take those four terms and write out definitions to them, one of them doesn't look like it necessarily fits the other, especially in a profile of a public person. You'd be the judge. Do you ever remember the thing on Sesame Street where, you know, you, know, you got one of these kids is doing his own thing, one of these kids is not the same? Some of you do, the rest of you don't, but it's basically just to help kids realize or separate, hey, you got a group over here and one's an outlier. The outlier in the list, I think, is grace. Now, if you're full of the Spirit, that's one thing, and it's going to govern all the rest. We'll kind of almost discount that. But when you've got power and you've got wisdom, smart guy who's got authority, is he usually one that exudes grace? Especially when everybody knows him from doing miracles. Now, let's just say... For comparison purposes, okay, we're, we're, we're walking off, you know, the map here to think about something else. Let's just think of power and authority structures within our own culture. Government. If you had a guy who had a lot of wisdom and he had a lot of authority and he could do miracles, do you expect him to be a gracious guy? Probably not. I don't see much grace coming out of Capitol Hill, period. But for Luke to give us that right there, grace and power, along with being able and capable, having the authority to do wonders and signs, full of the Holy Spirit, power, authority, but he's also gracious. Who would that remind us of? Only one person. Jesus. Who had the authority to walk into a temple and absolutely ransack uh, the money changers business and, and absolutely nobody there that day missed that and when he was done they're flabbergasted who is this guy but they couldn't say anything about it because what he did was absolutely right when he finished saying you've taken this house of prayer and turned it into a house of business they all knew what they'd done they were mad about it too but nobody's going to do anything about it that's authority and that's power. But then what about when his disciples uh, came to him and said, there's this group of people over here and all that racket is their, their youngins, their kids. We told them to stay away. And he says, no, you bring them to me. Let them come. That'd be grace. Or uh, what about when they came and said, there's these fellows over here trying to cast demons out in your name, but we told them to stop. And he said, well, I would just tell them to stop. If they're not against us, they're for us. It's a good thing. That would be, would be grace. It seems as though this man, Stephen, has character qualities that we've seen in Jesus himself. And I guess a good question to ask ourselves at the moment, 
before we keep going. Some of us may be known for our authority. Some of us may be known for our grace. But wouldn't it be nice if it was both? And we should probably work on that as best we can. Why? Because we're trying to be more like Jesus and less like ourselves every day. But this is striking. This is the guy who's going to be talking in chapter 7. This is the first man they're going to stone to death. He had all these things. Grace was one of them. And then verses 9 through 14 uh, speak of Stephen's courage. Again, we'll have to let this marinate through, through next week. Uh, we'll see it more clearly. Look at verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, Luke says, parentheses in the ESV, as it was called, and then mentions a number of uh, specific groups, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, that's... that's uh, to the south, Cilicia, Asia, you know, for they're from all over. And then it says they rose up and disputed with Stephen. So Stephen's been teaching. Stephen's been serving. Stephen's been doing miracles. Stephen's got power. Stephen's got grace. A lot of people know Stephen at this point. And now Stephen has a problem. They consider him a problem. They may have said, Judaism has a problem and his name is Stephen. Um, the details that are given here. Some of it we know what's going on, some of it we don't. I'll tell you what we do know, or at least an honest stab at it. Uh, it may describe several or separate uh, synagogues, maybe just one where all these people are part of. Don't know. The freedmen part. That means that these must have been foreign Jews because there's no such thing as a slave that's a Jew in Jerusalem. There might have been such a thing as a Jew who's a slave somewhere else. So this may be kind of like some of these uh, Jews that were scattered who'd come back in. Maybe this is part of those whose widows were neglected. It's possible. Uh, we know little else about them or what they did other than that they began or were introduced to them in this story by arguing with Stephen's teaching. Term rose up. Did you see that? That wasn't that they got up out of their chairs necessarily, but they, they were stirred into action formally to, um, let, let's see if we can't fix this. This has to stop. But by verse 10, we realize they didn't get very far. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. How many of you would think that they would just, you've know, already read the story, so you know what's happening, but just in your mind's eye, how many of you think they said, well, you know, got to hand it to him. He's, he's really good at that, isn't he? Or would this absolutely infuriate them? They're supposed to be the ones in charge of these things. But then this man chosen to serve tables is now speaking in such a way that they have nothing to say. Or saying something in contradiction would, would allow the rest of the room to know. He, he's got us. There's nothing we can say. And this isn't a, a surprise. Um, write down in, in your notes or your margin there, Luke 21, 15. And this would be, again, from Luke, but Jesus telling them that when it came time for the pressure that was mounted against Jesus that would end in his crucifixion is, is, is then trained on them, there will come a time where they will come for you. 
They will arrest you. They'll put you before a hearing. And this is what he says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. He'd already said it would happen. You wonder if Stephen was banking on it, but it was absolutely true. And why wouldn't they be able to speak against them? Well, it's not magic. It's just the truth. They'd say things like, this wasn't done in a corner. You all know this. You know the history. You act like you're proud of it as if it happened a different way, but it's not. We need to resist the idea that this was a miraculous type thing where these people were confounded and they didn't know what was going on. And these disciples got by without making... No, they made an absolute bulletproof case. Now, this isn't like, uh, these aren't the droids you're looking for. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Like the force was strongest on the weak-minded. This isn't that. Um, But then... Look at verse 11 quickly, because I think there's time between verse 10 and 11. uh, And then between 11 and 13. Then they secretly instigated men who said. See, I, I think between 10 and 11, it took time to secretly instigate men who said, We've heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then maybe the next step was stirring up the people there in verse 12. Maybe that was the same day. Maybe it took... A week, I don't know. We're not told. But Luke doesn't tell us, and certainly there's time between 12 and 13. um, And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. That's significant. Hang on to that. For we have heard him say that this Jesus, that's different. Nobody's named his name yet. But this isn't the Sanhedrin. This is a synagogue. That'll change later. For we have heard him say, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So, notice first, and that's in the sequence of what transpires between 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. It began with a serious theological debate. And I don't know that there's anything ever wrong with that. Now, I did know guys at seminary who would play ping pong all day talking about you've heard me say this whether or not Paul took a left or a right on his third missionary journey as as if that's going to you know totally change everything we've ever known about our our Bibles Um, there are tears of things as a matter of importance uh, I, I've, I've never got much out of a conversation that started with a really good question like, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? We'll find out. The Bible doesn't tell us. But there is absolutely no replacement for doctrine and theology and an understanding of such. And the the actual sharpening of iron that's necessary to make sure people know the truth. So a uh, theological debate is not a, a bad thing. That's where it started, but that's not where it ended. And it didn't stay there long because as the accusations were brought, 
with wisdom, he was able to put all that to bed. So what did they do next? When that failed, these men, called themselves men of God, began a campaign of lies. I mean, look at it again. Secretly, that's never good, instigated. Never know anybody that just seems to be born to be an instigator? Watch them. They'll go behind and, and stir up stuff, right? You know what I'm talking about. That's what they've done. It usually only talks about, hey, do you hear what so-and-so said? And what you want to do is get over on the fringe of something that's bad and negative, maybe just even in theory or possibility. Bring that up and then somehow attach it to this that's going on here if it, as though they're linked, inseparable, when really it's not. Turn on your TV. Watch political debates. It's fascinating, especially if you have your little um, cheat sheet of rules of logic and then uh, just flunk them on every one of those errors of logic <clears throat> you're cheating can't do that that's what's going on here in the Bible people in a synagogue and God's man who's witnessing to what actually took place so by the time you get to 13 not only have they secretly instigated stirred the people up then formally set up false witnesses. And this is just flat-out lie. It's a false witness. They told them to tell a lie. We're, we're, we're going to make these things up. So what you've got is a full-blown smear campaign. And um, I think a good, a good thing to say at this intersection is, let's pray that God would deliver us from every bit of that type of thing. Because you, 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 you'd be surprised at how easy it can happen inside a church. Or inside, say, a uh, denomination or a convention. You know, I've got this, and I like the way it is. I'm going to protect what I've got. I don't want it to change. Now, this guy has a point. That point is gaining ground. I don't like the point, so what can I do? Because I can't refute the point. I'll just make him out to look like something he's not. We'll assassinate the man's character rather than assassinate the argument that can stand on its own. Again, wide open field to look at. I'm I'm not sure that at the place American politics is that I'll ever see it come back into even some modicum of fair, open discussion. It's just been this way for so long. If you can't fight on the issues, then destroy each other. And it gets ugly and it gets gross. And you feel like you need a bath after you've, you've been part of it. Well, that's what they're going to try here. They're going to try to make this man a blasphemer. Which is exactly what they did to Jesus. There's absolutely nothing new here. What they did to Jesus, they're going to now do to Stephen. So the charges against him are significant. Uh, you couldn't be said to offend any more important things than the law or the temple. The temple is the place where people go to meet God. This is where Jesus got the money changers out because it's important. And then there's the law. That's the standard that separates children of Israel from the rest of the world. So you cannot take on the temple or the law and get away with it. Everybody knows that. But had he done that, 
Now, if we went back to the study in John, we know that Jesus taught that the temple would be replaced. Jesus taught that the law would be replaced. Now, be careful of the word replaced. Better word would be fulfilled. The purpose for the temple, where people went to meet God, God would go there to meet people. That's the way it worked. Until Jesus, God's Son, came in the flesh. And now people don't have to go to the building. God came to be with them. And that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies at the moment of His death is going to be ripped from the top to the bottom to say, we've said stay out for all time. Now we're saying come on in. Price has been paid. So not only is the temple different, but the actual law, the standard that says... I am righteous as your God, you are not as my creation. You've sinned, a promised sin would be met with death, but I'll send my son, he'll die in your place and trade you out your sin for his righteousness. So he's going to fulfill the use, the purpose of the law and the use, the purpose of the temple. This is exactly what Jesus said while he was here on earth. This, we think, is exactly what Stephen was teaching. As he told his men, go and teach everything that I've said and commanded. So the same flag that they're waving at Jesus, foul, you can't do this. You can't mess up what Moses gave us and you're not going to destroy this beautiful building. They didn't understand then and these people still don't understand at this point. But it's the same thing. All right, that's his courage because just like Peter and company, we've, we've seen them arrested twice and beaten once. At any point, they could have changed the message and removed the prickly parts, the offensive parts, the parts that will get me in trouble parts. They didn't. told the truth. And Stephen is going to demonstrate his courage to teach nothing but the truth, the whole truth. And it's going to cost him the same thing it cost his Lord. We'll see that next week. But finally... um, What about this description of his countenance? We've seen his character, his courage. Verse 15 tells us about his face. And gazing at him, all sat in the council, all who sat in the council, saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking at the ESV. I can't remember exactly what King James Version says. The word is gazing here and gazing at him. How does it make you feel when somebody's staring at you? Any, anyone want to raise their hand and say, I like it. <laughs> I don't like it when somebody's staring at me. Sometimes you catch somebody staring at you and then you're trying to like, I want to see if they're staring, but I don't want to be staring in order to see that they're staring. There's something about it that's just weird. It's human behavior. Um, you might be walking through a park and you see a young couple and they're They're just staring intently at each other. You say, well, they're not married. (laughs) They're they're dating, right? They're on their way to that. They'll get over it. But that's like the only situation that you notice people purposefully staring at one another and they like it. Most people don't like to be stared at because it kind of gives you this weird feeling like you're well, you're an object instead of a person. They don't know me. I don't know them. We need to know each other better before they stare at me like that. They're staring at him not because he's weird or something's wrong. 
They're staring at him because they're seeing something they can't account for. I think that's got to be what's going on here. Now, as the description here, the face of an angel, I think that's kind of a prelude to what's going to be at its height as he's looking into heaven and saying that he's seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God, which precipitates their rush. They're dragging him out of the, the city. Now, this isn't government. This is a synagogue here, it seems. And they take the law into their own hands and could be in big trouble. It wasn't lawful for them to kill anyone. That's Rome's job that they took away from them. So what does it mean? Uh, These people are red with anger. Stephen's face is described as that of an angel. As if to say that God is vindicating the faithfulness of Stephen by putting... Maybe a measure of his glory on his face. Now the only other cross reference we've got for this in all the Bible would be Moses. When he went up on the mountain to receive the law and take it down to the people. And Moses saw what? The back part of God while he was stuffed in the crack of a rock uh, to shield him from it. And it turned his face so bright and white that they had to put a veil over it. Because, of course, everybody's going to be staring at him. But they're going to be quite alarmed at it. At that. That's the only reference point. Is this the same as that? I don't know. I, I, I think there's a similarity. But it's obvious that this is unusual. And it's obvious that it's unnerving to these men. Maybe the better way to look at it is not to say, well, it was just like Moses or it was like Moses because we aren't told either. But I do think it's significant that here Stephen's radiant face is at the point of his accusation or being accused of having opposed the law. Moses' radiant face was after he had received the law They both have to do with the law. And maybe perhaps God is showing his approval, not only in the Old Testament, of Moses' ministry of the law. And that's what we call it, the law of Moses. You go into the, uh, you go to the Capitol and you walk in uh, to where Congress meets. You know, the State of the Union takes place. Uh, If from the position of the speaker's podium you look straight up in the back you'll see this big array of people's faces Moses is right there in the middle because he's the one that represents the law by which you govern people right so if God says I'm going to give him a piece of my glory on his face to show that I'm satisfied with his handling of my law would it be so far to imagine that this man in the New Testament so far removed would have a little piece of the glory of God shining on his face in approval of his correct interpretation of that law in the presence of men who got it very and badly wrong. Maybe. That's a way to look at it. That's not the way Luke says that's what this means. But it seems miraculous at that. His face is shining like that of an angel. So what's in this for us? 
How do we take all this wasness and make sense of it here in our isness? Um, we've covered the first part of three. Next week's the court proceedings, such as it was. And then the final week, we'll go back to what we read when we read the last part as the first part earlier. Um, what is Luke saying? Why is this story here? These are good questions to ask in trying to get toward an application. But I think maybe at this part, it'd be good to just kind of... Uh, Maybe try to observe the implications of some of these things. I think the implications can be uh, as readily applicable or useful in our understanding of Scripture as a, a plain application. You know the difference between an implication and an application? An application are usually easy to spot. Uh, this right here, now you go and do likewise. All right, I, I think that's easy enough. I've been given a clear directive. An implication is, uh, oh, back to the rending of that veil in the temple. What does, what's the implication of that? It, it, it kept, for centuries, darkness in that room. Nobody was supposed to even get near except one person one day of the week. And, and that was a big deal. He tied a rope around his foot, some say, in case he dropped dead of a heart attack. Nobody had to go in to get him because if you went in, you dropped dead. Stay out. What's the implications of it rending open? Come on in. So what are the implications of, of this man we were introduced last week as one of the first seven servants, perhaps a deacon? He's a magnificent speaker, but he's going to be the first martyr. Dead. What is Luke telling us? What's the Lord telling us? Well, I think there's loads of implications here, but there's at least a handful that I think could help us absolutely destroy a few or maybe a couple for this morning of, of common but false assumptions on the part of many Christians that just have in their head the way Christianity is supposed to go. This that we just read... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? COVID was a disruptor, wasn't it? Disrupted everything. Disrupted a lot of businesses. Uh, I, I, it's going to be a long time before the market is able to shake off what happened with a global pandemic and all things that got rotated and changed. And This is a disruptor. We forget about passages like this. That just days after Christ's ascension into heaven and weeks or months after his prophecy that they're going to kill me and then they're going to focus that on you. We forget that all but one of the apostles died like this. Different ways, but they all died. This disrupts the American version of what Christianity is supposed to be. You almost feel like America's meant to believe that the whole thing's just a big life enhancement add-on. It, be, you and Jesus will be better than just you by yourself. But it's to make you better, more healthy, richer, uh, your kids' teeth will grow straighter. You know, I'm making it sound goofy because it is goofy. We don't ever see that in Scripture. 
Does he say he'll never leave us? Yes. Does he say he'll give us his home in heaven? Yes. Does it say he will take every last one of our sins that we know are rotten to the core away for nothing and make us like we've always wanted to be exactly the way he created us to be? All that's true. But between the space of our trusting him for salvation and our seeing him face to face, there's no guarantees of basically anything other than we'll get a lot out of hanging out with each other. But it may actually be that he requires of us our physical life along with our belief and trust. It's possible. So the first um, common but false assumption that I think this passage absolutely destroys is I will never be called on to suffer for the name of Jesus. But I think a lot of Christians walk around that way, including myself. It just seems so remote. If we've had a decent education or we went to Bible school, we know of, of missionaries that gave their lives. Um, my wife, who's down the hall with the children, says one of the uh, most delightful honors of her life was being able to cover for one of her roommates who was supposed to work in the breakfast shift of the dining hall at Word of Life and was able to pour coffee for Elizabeth Elliot. She said, I'd just walk in and there she is. This this hero. She was asked. And, and probably what she went through was worse than what her husband went through. But... When we sign up for Jesus, we sign up for risk. I hate to put it any other way. Uh, you, you add a massive amount of risk uh, to your life and, and the way it's to be lived. Since the opening verses of Acts, the gospel hasn't ceased to go out to the world. That's the gospel in Acts. It goes out, keeps going and going and going, and it never stops. The gospel hasn't failed to win the lost so far. It keeps winning those to, the, to faith in Jesus. But what we're seeing is that the danger to those doing the preaching and teaching has steadily escalated. We've gone from arrests and then release to warnings and then to threats and a release after a beating. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 7, we've got an execution and there will be more. And none of this was a surprise, and none of the church viewed it as an atrocity. Jesus told them, and it happened exactly like he told them it would happen. So if that's one thing that I think is implied here that can be useful to our thinking, here's another, and it's kind of like the first, but maybe a, a useful pair, and then we'll pray and we'll go home. Should I be called to suffer, I don't think I'll have what it takes. I think this passage would say that is wrong. Because it's prophesied. This, this, the same passage. I mean, if you want to turn back to Luke or just write it down, it's the same passage already mentioned, Luke 21. I'll read you more of it. Verse 12, But before all this they will lay their hands on you, and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues, prisons. You will be brought before kings, governors for my sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds 
What? A script? Memorize what you're going to say? No. Not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So any young children who are are particularly uh, sharp for their age, do not, repeat, do not use this uh, when your parents say, you need to think more than you speak. Jesus is telling us the absolute opposite of that, isn't he? No, you know these things. They're in your heart. We've lived them. When it comes time, I'll pour it out of your mouth. I'll take care of you. And uh, I don't think that he'll do that until it's time. He tells them you'll be delivered up by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. Some of you they will put to death. Some. Not all. But I don't know that any of us have a guarantee that we're not on that list. So maybe you could go home this afternoon and think through what it means to give your life to Jesus. I've heard that so many times I I could never count them all. But I don't know that until after reading passages like this, it meant my actual life. I just thought it meant, you know, the time I spend thinking and doing and whatever else. Not... My heartbeat, my brain waves. It could be. Probably isn't. We hope it's not. But I think what happened with Stephen, we mentioned this this past Wednesday night. I don't think he's worried about himself. A guy who's worried about himself um, isn't described of as, as full of grace, right? Is grace what pours out of a person who's only worried about himself? No. I think that that's... The most useful in that description is full of grace. A man full of grace is so secure in himself or where he's going that he's got plenty to give to other people who need it then. And Stephen, I don't think, waited to decide Jesus was all he needed until Jesus was all he had. It's just at the moment when he realized Jesus is all he has, he'd so long ago decide Jesus was all he needed, he hadn't lost anything. I mean, you think about it. Again, back to the notion that songs planned three weeks ago land on a Sunday like this with this text. But you can have all this life. Give me Jesus. It's not a loss to him. I I don't know what tipped the balance and this mob went crazy on him. But to hear a guy... Speaking of gazing into heaven and seeing the Son of God standing. I don't know what will happen if I'm counted to suffer. Maybe just my reputation or my job or to lose part of my family or my own life. Would it make any difference if it got the Son of God off his feet to welcome you home? I think that's behind that that line. You can have all this life. It's not much <laughs> in comparison. This, this is a fantastic passage of Scripture. It speaks of things we know not of. All, a lot in here um, are pitches we're not going to catch. We don't have a glove for it. Uh, westernized, modernized Americans have had their share in form of entertainment of blood and guts. But we just... We don't know what this means. 
I don't, I don't think we do. Not unless we spend our time in our, our, in our Bibles. And we get to know this man. And if all that needs one more on, on the pile, you'll never be asked to do anything Jesus didn't do for you. Ever. He tasted not only every one of your sins without sinning through temptation, but He knows every one of your pains and agonies. Remember, He's the only one qualified at the end to wipe away your tears because He'll be the only one qualified to understand what they mean. So we'll find out um, Stephen's last stand here next week. Uh, I had seen where one pastor had titled this, The Way Angels Prepare to Die. <laughs> well, you'll hear how angels speak next week. And uh, I think that's our portion for today. Let me pray for us before we sing and go home. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for what it means. Lord, open our, our mind and give us some room to think through these things and what it what it would be, first of all, to be called your child, and second of all, what it would be to, to suffer for your name's sake. These disciples left a beating, counted worthy to suffer for your name. Their friend isn't going to make it as far as they did. And then they, in turn, are not as well. Lord, would you... Teach us what to do with our, our lives, not to worry about our, our, our death. Lord, would you put people in our way that we can tell the truth of the Scriptures to? Would you put people around us to watch? And would you give us the, the grace to live with grace, to be kind? Lord, would you be pleased to use us like you use these men, even though we can't even for a moment put ourselves in their place. But Lord, we ask that you'd use us like you, like you created us to use us. And live our purpose, our chief end, to glorify you and enjoy you forever. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.